This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Ramsey. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joanne Flores Villalobos, the author of Silver Woman, How Black Women's Labor Made the Panama Canal, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And Dr. Flores Villalobos is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Southern California. Um, And her work focuses on the histories of gender, race, and diaspora in Latin America and the Caribbean. Dr. Flores Villalobos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nicole. I'm so happy to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. Um, I've obviously been looking forward to this, and I'm so thrilled and excited to be discussing this amazing and, for me, highly anticipated book, um, which is like a great intervention into thinking of Central America, imperial histories that centers women and specifically Black West Indian migrant women in their intimate lives. I, I have been also so excited to talk to you because I feel like nowadays in academia, especially during the COVID pandemic, we've made so many Twitter friends. Uh, and now it's exciting to actually be able to have a conversation. <laughs> Yes, 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 exactly. I feel like Twitter was so helpful in finding my kind of academic like community, my people that, you know, um, I'm inspired by their work and then just chatting. So it's really nice to be able to connect in this way. Um, So I guess like just to start it off, I wanted to begin this interview with um, some like foundational questions. So if you could tell us about your background, your trajectory, Um, your personal history and how you became interested in this study of West Indian women histories and citizenship in Panama, Central America, and even, you know, the broader diaspora. Mm -hmm. So um, this is terrifying for me to say every single time, because I actually started this project as an undergrad, you know, as a 21-year-old person, which means I've spent a good 14 years working on the same book. Um, and now my head hurts just to think about that. I was a Black Studies major in college. I wanted to write a thesis. Uh, my advisor is a Caribbean literature scholar, Dr. Rhonda Cobham Sander, who is, you know, my idol and my angel. Um, so I was really inspired in the work I'd done with her. I was trying to come up with a thesis topic at the same time. That's the kind of beginning of the academic interest. At the same time that that's happening, uh, my family in Venezuela, where I'm from, Um, had started to leave Venezuela to lots of different places. Um, But a lot of my family moved to Panama. So that's the place where we started getting together, right? That was the place where my family would get together for the holidays. We began to travel there a lot. uh, And it became kind of our second home. And I, you know, began to learn more about Panamanian history and was really struck by, I, I went to the, to the Museo Afrantillano de Panama, the West Indian Museum of Panama, which is run by an amazing volunteer organization of West Indian Panamanians called SAMAP, and was really struck by the difference of the way that that museum tells the story of the construction of the Panama Canal, and then the way that story gets told in the kind of uh, bigger, more institutional museums, and certainly in the written histories um, in Panama and in the U.S. especially. And I couldn't shake that that gap, right? Uh, when you go to the West Indian Museum of Panama, which I discuss in the conclusion of the book, um, you see so, so much evidence of women's work, right? There are veranda kitchens, there are 
uh, weavings, there are hair irons, there's food. A lot of the volunteers are themselves women, right? And they'll talk to you about their families, their ancestors. And so to then read the books and see the institutional histories and see absolutely zero Black women, right? Maybe one kind of faraway mention was... It was so distinctive to me, that gap. And so I thought, wow, this is a great project. And it connects so clearly to the things I'd been studying in school, which, of course, was about the Caribbean, about the diaspora more generally, about kind of Black radicalism and Black resistance. And I was trying to think as well of, like, what was women's specific experience of radicalism and resistance in this period? So that was how it really, really started, right? That was the real seed was when I was, like, a young naive 21-year-old. But the project as it exists now really developed after I finished that undergraduate thesis and had some time to think and time to explore and time to grow. And um, initially that project had been based entirely on sources based in the U.S. because I wasn't able to travel. I didn't have funding. Um, But I realized that this could become such a bigger project if I could go to Panama, could go to the islands, could go to the UK. Um, And that's when I really found the material that was able to broaden out this work and make it what I always envisioned it could be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You kind of um, drop some nuggets in there, especially in terms of, you know, thinking perhaps to undergrads and graduate students who may be listening, how like your work evolves over time to become kind of this bigger project, right? And, you know, um, learning things on the way that kind of builds to this larger question that you're asking. And also it speaks, it kind of speaks to the testament of your work, right? Even your own personal history of, you know, your family living in so many different places and migration, um, displacement even, um, and speaks to kind of how this work and why this work is so important as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it was also that connection of of the personal and the the scholarly, right, was so intertwined for me in this project. It was bizarre to me that there were no histories of migrant women when I could turn to my own family, right, not even to speak of all the historical evidence of the wide historical evidence, but I could look and see my own family and think about how women were these really important links that that created and fostered networks of migration, right? That seemed absolutely obvious to me. Um, so I always like to tell people that the, the argument for this book is something that everybody already knows and that I'm just kind of telling you in a book uh, because nobody else has bothered to kind of write it down. But everybody is aware that women are important uh, links in a migrant network Everybody in the West Indies knows that women migrated to Panama, that they played a crucial role, right? So why hasn't this been part of the way we remember the history of the Panama Canal? Right, right. Definitely speaking to kind of like this kind of already known knowledge versus like what's represented um, in these histories and what we learn in school um, and what are kind of the narratives that continue to dominate. Um, So, you know, this book has inspired me um, as someone who's thinking about Black Central America and kind of um, how we carve out this history within these academic spaces for a while. And it's so inspiring to kind of see such important works being published and discussed. And, you know, what we've been saying, we can learn so much from this region and its particular histories. And this is like a conversation that we kind of had right before (laughs) starting, but can you share a bit about your experiences um, in the publishing process um, in terms of bringing these histories and this book to life? And, you know, for me <laughs> and any other graduate students, postdocs or early scholars who might be listening, can you share a bit about that? Of course. And I'm happy. Please ask me follow up questions because there are lots of ways I could go with this process. Yes. <laughs> um, but one thing that I thought was really interesting was that, um, I'm not sure if you mentioned, but I published with with University of Pennsylvania Press, which is a a wonderful press, but notoriously and historically publishes U.S. history. Uh, And I published in a series that's called, um, oh, wow, of course, I'm going to get it wrong, Politics and Modern Culture in the U.S. No, that's not it. Um, I will remember the exact the exact name of the series. 
uh, politics and culture in modern America. That's what it is. Um, which was not what I expected or planned when I started this project. Um, I thought I was going to publish with a press that specialized in Latin America uh, or the Caribbean, but, but specifically Latin America, right? There are some presses that are just well known for publishing that. And honestly, they weren't interested. And I think now it's that something like the Panama Canal, which is so intertwined with the imperial history of the U.S., didn't seem Latin America enough to them. To me, those things are not separate, right? You can't put these histories into different boxes. And it was challenging, I think, to find a press that really understood how this book and this history is inevitably kind of transnational, right? Um, And I think part of what worked with Penn is that even though there are press focused on US history, uh, the editors who've been running this series in the past couple of years are people who do work on this kind of transnational history, right? Keisha Blaine, uh, who's an amazing scholar of the African diaspora and of black women, uh, Stephen Pitty, who also works on uh, Mexican American immigration. So I think they're also beginning to think of as US history as something that's much broader than that. And that really helped me shape the book as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, That's really interesting that you bring that up because that's also something um, for folks who may be doing histories that are, like you said, transnational and kind of the pressures of having to designate where your specific scholarship fits into something um, is definitely something to consider. And factors into kind of like the politics of publication and where to send your book and, you know, finding a perfect home for your book, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So um, I also had a question about methods because um, it was fascinating to read about how Black West Indian women kind of navigated so many different spaces in your book, whether in Panama or across the Caribbean. And this also got me thinking about kind of practices of reading um, like Black women's subjectivities in the archive and historical record. And um, a lot of my questions have to deal with the archive and the record just because, um, you know, considering Black women's space or their presence and erasure within the record, and then a place where Panama that is at the intersection of all these movements, um, can you give a little bit of insight into the process of finding and documenting these histories and even if you want to include like maybe your experiences with the archives in general as you began the research for this book Mm -hmm. i mean this was this is really one of my one of my major points in the book right i try to make a lot of methodological points about how to write about uh black women's history without kind of making that too too much of an academic discussion but it was really important to me because again I, as I mentioned when I was talking about the how I got to the project right uh, when this became my dissertation uh, I was really thinking archivally right about how to expand the project that I had begun as a kind of tiny seed um, as an undergrad uh, because so my first my first archival trips were all to um, the National Archives, of the US, which are in College Park, Maryland, and in DC. Um, those places hold all the legal records and all the administrative correspondence of the Isthmian Canal Commission, which ran the Panama Canal construction. And it was a really frustrating experience, right? I spent months and months there looking up material uh, and finding nothing, nothing, right? I mean, just reading endlessly about. Uh, quartermaster's reports, dredging reports, right? All sorts of things. Um, and even, you know, the, the they have a whole uh, section in the archive called Laundry, which I assumed would have Black women in it because why wouldn't it? They did all the laundry. Uh, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It just tells you the cost of laundering and starching different items of clothing, you know, throughout like a s- seven decades. Um, eventually I did find some black women in that particular archive, but they were only present in archives that were about criminalization, right? So, um, in the Panama Canal zone, interracial marriage and cohabitation without marriage were illegal. Uh, these were crimes that the Panama Canal zone mostly persecuted, uh, through black women. And so they had like specific 
surveillance of the Black women who lived in the Canal Zone and wrote a lot of police reports about them and their moral behavior, etc. So those were the places where I began to find them. And I knew, I knew immediately then, right, that this was a book that I couldn't write just with the, with the straightforward material from this archive, right? So then I did two things. One was expanding the archive transnationally, right? I went to the UK, I went to the islands, I went to Panama and found lots of other material, not material that was a kind of a perfect counter to the US narrative, right? But at least that had other inroads into this history. Um, And then the second kind of methodological aspect was a practice of reading, as you mentioned, right? Really inspired by the work of people like Marisa Fuentes in Dispossessed Lives or Jessica Marie Johnson's Wicked Flesh, which I actually read uh, in the kind of last year of writing this book. So that was a huge inspiration for me. Um, And thinking carefully about how to write about Black women's history while always acknowledging the power in the archive that created that representation, right? So my book is always kind of putting that double lens on the source, right? Thinking about what it tells us, but also why it's telling us in this particular way. Um, And that I think is a really important practice in writing about this. Yes, thank you, thank you. That's such a great answer. Um, You know, thinking about archival work and what to look for and what questions to ask um, and kind of the whole concept of um, even having to redirect and look elsewhere. Um, and in your book, as well as the answer that you provided now, um, I've just been considering both kind of like the abundance and perhaps limitations of archival work in this region. Um, and then of course, you know, finding that West women, West Indian women in the archives can be particularly challenging as their appearances in them didn't provide them with much agency. And in addition to thinking of West Indian migrants who avoided kind of more traditional modes of identification, the thing that I really loved, I mean, I love the book, um, but with each chapter, kind of these anecdotes that you present um, really compelled me, um, kind of drew me in um, and you, do this thing where you zoom in and kind of these intimate lives of these women and then zoom out to reveal kind of these intricate layers of domination. So thinking about the archive and what you find and thinking about the particular stories you want to tell, um, can you tell us a little bit about like some of the thought process behind particular stories, like which ones you wanted to include and perhaps other kind of creative methods you maybe had to adopt or you use to counter these archives and records? Yeah. I mean, I think to me, uh, especially when facing kind of recalcitrant archives, let's say, I and I tell this to all my students, right? And and everybody I mentor, I'm I just tell everybody, keep your guiding light in mind at all times. And to me, the guiding light was women talking about themselves, right? Women speaking for themselves, even even in a source that is really constrained by, um, you know, dominant discourses, uh, by policing, et cetera, right? Where can I find them talking for themselves? That's not always, uh, you know, sources never give you that kind of perfect voice, let's say, but that's what I always tried to go for. So the places where that was most distinctive were the places where I tried to highlight it. Um, but, you know, part of part of what's difficult uh, with with talking about some of this archival material is that in some cases, it's not that women weren't there. It's rather that the archive is kind of obfuscating them. Right. So, for example, in the National Archives of Panama, which I've been to many times, if you go and ask them about West Indian women, they will say, we have absolutely nothing about West Indian women here. You will find nothing here about that topic. Uh, and you just have to say, hey, uh, let me look at, let me let me just look at some of this stuff, you know? Um, what I found, for example, there, I, um, I looked at these archives called um, Corregiduría archives, which are essentially kind of justice of the peace records, um, you know, uh, small kind of small claims courts in in neighborhoods of Panama, Panama City. 
Um, and when I opened up the files for the years right around the, the ending of the construction, I found that uh, West Indian women participated in the majority of these cases, right? They were bringing claims to these uh, courts about, I mean, like five times more than Panamanian women, uh, but even twice as much as Panamanian men or West Indian men, right? Uh, so they were actually quite present, quite visible, naming themselves as West Indian, talking about their lives and their neighborhoods. Uh, and so then I was like, why did you tell me there wasn't anything here? There's so much, right? Um, so it's really about the way the way that some of these archives are organized and understood are also not in ways that are conducive to thinking about where women are and where, where they're speaking, right? And so then when I would find archives like that, I knew that that was, you know, that those were the places to focus in for great stories. Yes, thank you. I, I think you raised some very important points. And I'm also, as I'm conducting this interview, taking notes of everything that you're saying um, so that when I visit the archive, I can um, kind of, you know, do the, some of the similar things that you brought up. Um, and I was actually laughing because I've heard, you know, it's a very common story um, to kind of go in the archives and say, this is exactly what I'm looking for and saying, you know, it doesn't exist. So kind of dealing with these multiple layers of erasure and just finding ways is kind of something in itself. Um and it really shows in your work too, like some of the ways that you were able to be creative, looking at how they're naming themselves, um, what terms they're using, um, and then also looking at like um, court cases. Um, I thought that was really um, fascinating and something that I think um, a lot of students who are interested in the region and especially interested in kind of Black women's lived experience can look towards. Um, and, you know, in that sense, um, I have so many questions. So I'm trying to um, um, limit my own kind of interest um, and center the reader's interest as well. So in reflecting kind of on the intimate lives of West Indian women in the canal zone, and then also within the like post-emancipation period in general, one thing that you brought up um, in your answer, I think, previous to this um, was common law marriages, and they emerge as a thread that runs throughout the book and is pretty much used as to connect these different chapters of life for West Indian women and kind of you um, illustrate how their reluctance and or negotiation of marriage, uh, traditional legal partnerships um, as a strategical negotiation of self-determination amid kind of gendered and like colonial imperial violence. So I'm interested in knowing more about um, if you can speak more um, for the readers of how marriage became to quote disputed battlefield between West Indian women and the canal administration as well as West Indian um, women and male laborers. Um, could you speak more about that? Or I'm interested to know more about that um, in your words. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a big part uh, of the of the early uh, chapters in the book, and I really start it in the post emancipation Caribbean, as you as you rightfully pointed out, uh, because this is a a battleground uh, that starts in that period, right? Uh, post emancipation colonial states are really concerned with the moral behavior um, of formerly enslaved people, and amazing scholars of the Caribbean, uh, Melanie Newton. Uh, Michelle Johnson and Brian Moore have established that this was uh, part of the legislation that really comes out of that period, right? They're trying to uh, encourage, uh, encourage is a light word for what they were doing, uh, legal marriage among formerly enslaved people. And they created a lot of legislation around um, what was called bastardy, which is obviously not an acceptable word anymore, but that's what they called it then. Um, and various other kind of moral behavior, right? So this is already something that West Indian women are actually really used to, right? They, they know from the context that they come from that states are concerned about their marriage and quote unquote moral practices, right? And they've already spent decades trying to formulate their own versions of marriage, of love, of kinship, of intimacy, right? So by the time they get to the Panama Canal, this is already something that they're well aware of, 
right? Um, it's just that then they get to the canal zone and it, the the entire power structure is putting its weight behind this, right? Because essentially what happens is that the canal administration comes to Panama to build the canal. And in the very early years of construction, they weren't ready for women to come. They didn't think this was going to require the creation of an entire society, right? With uh, support networks, with women doing labor of social reproduction, uh, with having to provide such extensive services, right? They thought they were going to come in, do the work, get it done, get out, right? And all of a sudden, when women do start coming, they have this kind of moral panic, right? Um, and as I mentioned in the book, it, it becomes this this huge transnational debate about how the canal administration should, should run itself. Um, and one of their main points of contention is that American administrators don't understand the distinction between marriage that is not legalized and sex work. To them, the exchange of intimacy and money, which is essentially what happens in a marriage, without that legal authorization to them, that was akin to sex work. And so they termed it immoral. They legislated against it and criminalized it in the canal zone and then used it as one of the many tools to police the behavior of the people who were kind of on the margins of the endeavor, right? People who weren't contracted workers, um, who weren't kind of on the employee lists of the canal uh, could still be surveilled and controlled by these methods. Yes. Um, thank you for kind of explaining that. I think that was one of the things that I was really struck by, especially in thinking of the relationship between like common law marriage and kind of the surveillance and policing of women in that way. Um, and, you know, as in chapter three, um, a scandal on the Isthmus, where we kind of learn about Clement Gerald, um, I believe a Martin, a woman from Martinique. Um, who was kind of investigated under the guise of sex work and her morality was only demonstrated through proof that, you know, she was attached or had a husband, I believe, and um, a U.S. employer. Um, and although I know this, like, this history is very familiar, I also began to really think deeply about kind of like the real implications Um for women who are deemed as immoral or doing sex work that included, um, you know, deportation or um, deportation or imprisonment. Um, so that was something that, you know, even thinking about kind of these points of contention that show up in your work and kind of the real life implications of what it means to be immoral. Um, so I thought that was really interesting too, as well. Yeah, and I think you, you know, I really found it in in the the particular source you mentioned, which was this this big investigation that the U.S. Canal Administration did of around 300 Martinican women who arrive um, on the canal zone in 1905. Who uh, a, a big newspaper article comes out in the U.S. that uh, claims the Canal Administration had paid for these women to come as sex workers to the canal zone, which the administration disputes. Um, and then does this very intensive investigation of the women. It, uh, they put all the single women in a camp overseen by police, uh, a camp that they couldn't leave um, outside of like restricted hours, essentially, uh, you know, a makeshift internment camp. Um, and they interview all the women, they interview a lot of police officers and labor recruiters, etc. Um, and what was interesting to me in reading the source is that, of course, the majority of the source is concerned with the thoughts and concerns of the canal administrators. But in between, there were a few lines that really struck me, right? So for example, um, in, in the summary of the investigation, the canal zone governor says, you know, when the lawyer visited the women, a lot of them, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact words they, that he says, but he says something like they started crying and fearing that they would be returned to Martinique, right? Um, and that's just one line among the many other things he says that are, you know, concerned with administrative matters. But to me, that struck me so much, right? Because I immediately envisioned these women 
you know, in a, in a place where they had just arrived, thinking that they had come for opportunity, many of them actually coming with their husbands or with their partners, right, whether they were legal husbands or not, and then getting this American lawyer coming to their homes and asking them questions about whether they were sex workers, whether they had, uh, you know, whether they were civilized women, uh, all these things. You can imagine that it was so traumatic. And so then my, my, my objective in that chapter was to take a source that was, a, that was about erasing the trauma that these women faced and putting it at the forefront, right? And thinking about what their experience of undergoing that kind of investigation was. And then to think about how even, even in the face of that intense violence, of that horrible questioning, of that internment in essentially a prison camp, they still went on and had the relationships that they wanted to have, right? Uh, it's not like the marriage rate all of a sudden went all the way up and all West Indian people started getting legally married. They didn't. They kept the relationships they wanted to have and defended them to, to the canal administration. Yes. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, it really kind of shows the way that this is all kind of functioning at the same time, right? Um, so... I assign your article on gender, race, and kind of labor on, you know, the domestic frontier. Um, in my classes, it's one of my favorite articles to assign um, in thinking about, you know, centering of Black women in these, like, major, like, kind of world, you know, the building of the Panama, the building of the Panama Canal, these world events. Um, and, you know, kind of thinking about publishing and having the book all come together, um, seeing that incorporated into the book, for me, really tied these various stories together in a very compelling and beautiful way. And in addition to exploring Central America and, you know, the presence of Black populations from the perspective of kind of, quote, this frontier of empire, um, you also discussed how Black and white women inter interpreted their own subjectivities and moved within the racial and gendered hierarchies of the canal zone. Can you elaborate um, on kind of this insertion of white womanhood and, um, you know, West Indian women, and then also particularly how you used memoir to provide an intricate history of womanhood and domesticity in the canal zone? Mm -hmm. So this was actually, um, uh, yeah, for anybody who's listening, who's maybe at the, the beginning of the process of writing a dissertation, these were one of the earliest sources that I found because they're, of course, published memoirs. So you can get them through interlibrary loan when you're just sitting, you know, in your office. Um, and these were three memoirs written by white American women a couple of decades after the canal construction had been completed that have been used pretty extensively in histories of the Panama Canal Zone um, to talk about white women. And so I, you know, I got them on interlibrary loan. I sat down and read them and I was a little shook because these memoirs are entirely about white women's relationships with black women. So much more so than I expected when I you know, when I cracked them open for the first time, right? Um, the Rose Van Handervelt's memoir is like every moment in her memoir is punctuated by an encounter she has with a black woman. There are so many that didn't even make it into my book. And so I was again really struck by the by the separation between what was in the sources and what had get what had gotten talked about in kind of more traditional published histories of the canal. Um, and so I started working with these sources and trying to read through these stories, most of which are extremely explicitly racist, right? Uh, proudly racist, let's say. Um, and trying to think about what can I say about Black women, even with these really problematic sources. And I think what I found is that I couldn't write about black women without talking about white women and white womanhood, right? Uh, and the, the fostering of a particular kind of white womanhood by the canal administration, which as much as it didn't want black women to come, really encouraged white women to come to the canal zone. It created a really really good married housing uh, for white Americans. 
Uh, it had a YMCA. It had so it hired a woman to come create social clubs for white women or another white American woman. Um, it started bringing in kind of more home goods and different foods to the commissaries to entertain the white women who had traveled there. Um, it published kind of puff pieces about white women's activities in the canal zone. Um, it had the official photographer of the administration take pictures of white women dressed in these like lace white gowns with like perfect white tablecloths and like a silver coffee set that really, really fosters this idea of kind of white women being the bastion of civilization in the tropics, right? Um, And that is the same idea that these white women feed into their memoirs, right? They see themselves, uh, they also see themselves as pioneers, pioneers who have been neglected in histories of the Panama Canal, right? Alongside white men. Um, And so they want to kind of add themselves to this history and say, our work was also important in civilizing Panama, right? In civilizing the jungle. But the way that that story translates for them, right, their work of civilizing was in interactions with Black women. Because you have to imagine that these are the people, these are the workers that they're interacting with on a daily basis, right? They're not out, uh, you know, in the Culebra cut, like blowing up dynamite. They're in homes, they're in commissaries, uh, they're interacting with laundresses, with domestic workers, uh, with uh, higglers or market women, right? And so when they narrate how they're civilizing the canal, what they're actually narrating is their interactions with Black women over and over and over again, right? And it's exactly in the sites of interaction that they're building their version of white womanhood. And so I I knew that I had to write about both of these things together uh, because that's the kind of like complexity of the sources there. Yes, for sure. I think that that particular chapter was really powerful to me as well, right? looking at memoirs, looking at the way that white women talk about themselves and their relationships with black women. But also I think it was really powerful to kind of see you read these interactions as well. Um, So kind of creating this possibility of, okay, this is the narrative that white women in kind of inserting themselves into these neglected histories want to kind of portray. But also this is something that's also happening kind of like reading these memoirs against the grain, which I thought was really powerful. And I think, um, you know, the kind of um, implication of white women in these histories, um, as well as thinking more broadly within kind of these colonial contexts um, as on these islands, right? Um, I think it really sets, it, sets the groundwork for us to kind of think about these things as happening at the same time. So I really appreciated that. And it really kind of tied into kind of this constant negotiation of womanhood, um, particularly like West Indian um, women in the canal region, um, um, the canal zone. Um, And um, it really got me thinking also about, you really talk about like reputation, gossip stories, and how that also functions in a particular type of agency and a particular type of um, lived experience. Um, and then also kind of not to take it back to um, common law marriage, but how West Indian women were also able to kind of claim um, what you say, um, claim victimhood to get what they wanted um, and negotiating that. And can you speak a little bit briefly to that as well? Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's, that's a really important part and a really difficult part of the book to write because you know, I mentioned or, or at the beginning when I was really coming to this topic that I was thinking a lot about uh, resistance and radicalism, um, because so much of, of the way that Black diaspora history gets written in this period, right, in the early 20th century, particularly in the 20s, is uh, this kind of great moment of resistance of Black consciousness. Um, and I found that for women, it was it was very difficult in the situation that they were in to always enunciate a kind of radical position of, you know, counter resistance to dominant uh, regimes, right? That was just literally not possible if they were going to survive the situation. And so they had to use a lot of other strategies at their disposal to, to really be able to get through these 
situations often of intense domestic violence or of potential deportation, right, or of uh, losing child support, so on and so forth, right? And so women would often uh, use discourses of uh, victimhood, right? They would present themselves to canal zone courts as, um, you know, like suffering women who had like no money and no support, even though, I mean, and that might have been the case individually for certain women, of course, I, I'm, I can imagine that that was the case. But we also know from other sources that women certainly did have jobs, did make money, and did have support networks among other West Indian women, right? Um, so we know that it was partly at least a strategic move to present themselves to canal zone courts as the courts wanted to see them, right? Um Similarly, with the uh, with claiming reputation in this is in Panama courts, right? Women similarly would bandy about insults towards other West Indian women, even insults calling them, you know, sex workers, etc., in a despective way, right, or immoral, uh, because they knew that that was a kind of successful way to control their environment. Those were the discourses that were floating around, right, and by establishing themselves as the person with the kind of moral higher ground, they were able to gain certain benefits, right, in the neighborhoods that they lived in. And to me, those those moments were really interesting, right, and and don't mean that women weren't engaging in kind of countercultural discourses, right, but instead that they had to navigate this really complicated terrain of expectations and trying to use it to their advantage. Thank you, thank you. Um, I wanted to talk kind of shifting to the later arguments that you make in the book um, and what I feel are some, you know, the, the whole book kind of brings forth some uh, very integral interventions, right? Um, so in the latter part of the book, thinking more about death and kind of the kind of afterlives of the Panama Canal and diaspora making, um, I'm thinking about in terms of diaspora making, the fact that the Panama Canal um, brought West Indians as labor migrants from all corners of the Caribbean and even Central America, um, across Central America, to escape these harsh kind of economic conditions of their islands. And furthermore, in the book, we learn how these cultural and social norms from the islands of origins were also transported in practice in Panama um, in Central America. I'm thinking of Limon Costa Rica because um, it shows up oftentimes here. Um, could you elaborate kind of on the diverse experiences of Caribbean women and men um, in the canal, um, both within the ICC, Isthmian Canal Commission and Canal Zone as a result of migration, kind of forms of diaspora making and differences and similarities? Yeah, I mean, this is, and uh, speaking of the publication process, when I uh, when I wrote the first big draft of this book as a book, that last chapter didn't exist. Um, and my reviewers and my editors said, you really need a chapter to close it out, right? To, to, to tell us, essentially, what difference did migration to Panama make? Um, and I think, and that's what I tried to do in that chapter, right? By focusing on... Uh, because making that kind of cause and effect argument is a little difficult. I instead went the route of thinking about the experience of certain specific women and kind of following them through as they either stayed in Panama or followed different paths out of Panama to places like Limon, to places like Santiago de Cuba, where there was a big sugar boom, or to New York City, which is probably the more well-known kind of route of migration. Though still, I think people aren't quite aware, though people know that a lot of West Indian migrants came to New York City um, in the early 20th century. I think the connection that a lot of people came through Panama first, right? That they went from the West Indies to Panama and then to New York um, has gotten lost sometimes. And so I try to think about Again, what what were the practices of diaspora and of migration that West Indian women learned and honed in the Panama Canal, right? Partly because the canal zone is such a distinctive, contained place where the U.S. had a lot of resources to spend on uh, social organizing and surveillance, right? If you think of somewhere like Limon or, or, or Santiago de Cuba or many of these other places where, for example, the United Fruit Company um, 
had plantations, those were places that certainly the U.S. had power, Uh, but they were run by private corporations, right? So it was a a slightly different and more diffuse form of power than that of the Canal Zone, which was run by uh, the Department of War. Right. It was it was essentially a military colony uh, where the U.S. really had an enormous amount of top down power. Right. Um, So women's interaction with canal zone authorities in this really uh, circumscribed space uh, was something that they were able to translate to other places. Right. And already learn these strategies that help them survive later, right? Certainly, for example, with the issue of marriage, which came up again in Cuba, um, with uh, patterns of like kinship and strategies of social reproduction that sustained them in Panama, that then also sustained them in New York City, in Limon, etc. And I forgot to you, sorry to interrupt, you also asked about people who stayed in Panama, which of course were also, a lot of people did in fact stay. Um, And in Panama, as in Costa Rica, as in Honduras, as in Cuba, they had to deal with growing um, xenophobia, right? And and racist nationalism that was on the rise, specifically in response uh, to West Indian immigrants, right? So... So that was part of the that was part of what was happening in the aftermath that that was also affected by what they had learned in dealing with a canal administration that had been, again, openly racist and and ran the canal on an explicitly segregationist policy. Yeah, no, thank you for um, including that last part. I think that's really important to kind of some of the things that you're saying about, um, you know, the people that stay and people that migrate and what these different kind of geographies mean um, in terms of like their lived experience and um, what comes after that. It's also, thank you for sharing um, and incorporating kind of the publication process um, and incorporating these histories. Um, And even thinking about the space of like Central America too and Panama where I think the narrative of just people coming from Jamaica, (laughs) which is often um, at least like, you know, certain people that I talk to as it being kind of a Jamaican experience. And I think in your book, I was really fascinated too about seeing kind of, um, you know, Panama and the Canal Zone as a space where you kind of have all these people um, coming from all corners of the island who are now um, interacting and um, I don't know, kind of like birthing this geography um, informed by West India's different locations and different relationships to the nation state. And then, you know, migrating to places across Central America, to Cuba, to New York. Um, so I thought that was something that really kind of was brought out um, in the latter part of the book and kind of puts all of these histories back into play. Um And it also makes me think about the, in terms of migration and diaspora making of, or practices of diaspora, um, about West Indian women's participation in local and global economies through entrepreneurship. And then of course, you know, talking, we just talked about immigration to other islands and locales, but then also remittances. And that's something that, um, you know, we often talk about too in practices of diaspora and transnationalism and remittances, I'm sorry, sent back to certain islands. For example, you talk about in your book how this allows children to be cared for, um, land to be purchased, and then ultimately like, you know, certain types of wealth being passed down generationally. And it's such a profound observation. And I think it contributes greatly to kind of the discourse surrounding contemporary migration and citizenship, um, which, you know, left me interested in kind of this question. And I don't know if you can answer um, or if you feel comfortable answering, um, but I was also left wondering how many island nations and kind of diasporic communities benefited from this labor and in the case of like economic development and like sending remittances and how we can measure that today um, maybe you can give a little bit of insight or briefly um, share like maybe some things you came across in that sense. Yeah, I actually have so much to say about this topic. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
Um, so this was actually a a part that was in the dissertation, a whole chapter that in the book ended up just becoming a very small section um, about the afterlives of Panama money, which I, which I love how it fits into the book, right? I talk about um, Polly Marshall's answer, you know, famous Barbadian American author of Brown Girl Brownstones, who in her memoir writes about her family, her mother migrating to New York with the money that her grandmother had uh, fostered from remittances that were sent by um, a brother who worked on the Panama Canal, right? So it was money sent by a brother that the grandmother invested in land and then rented out. And then that money was used for migration, right? And a lot of people did did exactly this kind of thing, right? I mean, and like you say, with remittances, it's, it's a it's the kind of thing that everybody knows, right? Of course, in the canal, most of the workers on the construction were men. A lot of women stayed in the islands. So men sent money and women received it. But we only often hear about the first part and not what happens after the second part, right? And I was interested in that second part. Like, what do these women do with the, when the money comes? Um, and, and some of it was fostering migration. Some of it was taking care of children. Some of it was buying land. Uh, there's a amazing book by Bonham Richardson from 1985 called Panama Money in Barbados that talks more extensively about how, what the money, how the money influenced Barbados specifically and its kind of economic futures. Uh, but I've become really interested in this question. And I actually used, um, so Bonham Richardson uses uh, the records of the Barbados Savings Bank. Uh, and he mentions, but doesn't really, doesn't really go on to talk about uh, the fact that they're like about 50% of the users of this bank were West Indian women. Uh, so I actually just wrote an article that's coming out in April in history workshop. Uh, that's about these bank records, about remittances and about women's roles as financial managers of their families. Right. Um, and so what I do is I use these savings bank records to wh- where they list the names of the users. Uh, and then I, I, um, I kind of correlated the bank records with immigration records that are digitally available to track which people were opening accounts uh, in the bank who also had a connection to migration either on the canal or to other places right outside of the outside of Barbados. Um, And I found that it was just like an overwhelming amount of the of the women who opened accounts uh, either for themselves or for other family members were doing so because they were managing Panama money. Um, which was really interesting to me, of course, and I talk about it a lot. But to come back to this question of economic development, I think what is interesting to me about it is that um, I would say, so in some islands like Barbados, the money did have, did make a big difference, right? People talk a lot about how um, uh, people were able to buy their own homes and how a lot of houses, which they call Panama houses even, uh, because they did these certain kind of uh, architectural additions to the homes all that all happened in the same period because people had this big influx of money. But I think that the, the, the question is not about what happened to the economic development of the islands, but rather what did Black people do with this money? Because they didn't care about the economic development of the islands. You know what I mean? Like they, they weren't doing this to uh, invest in colonial economies, right? They were doing this for their own economic futures and the economic futures of their families. Um, and so, so I think development is kind of not the right frame. And instead, instead, I try to think about it as like the economic futures that these people were trying to make for themselves, right? Uh, the colonial governments of these islands never imagined and never wanted West Indian migrants to leave permanently and never bring the money back. But that's exactly what people did, right? They made the Panama money. Maybe they invested it in some, some of them invested in the islands, but most of them left and most of them used the money to live in other places, to migrate other places, to bring their family members, you know, in this kind of chain migration to buy homes in New York city. Um, And these were things that were not really uh, helping the colonial governments of any of these places, right? Uh, maybe by the wayside, but they were mostly decisions made um, as families, as kin, as communities, right? For their own advancement. Yeah, no, thank you for making that clarification. I think that's a really um, kind of important to kind of redirect that to kind of Black people's agency 
and what they're able to do with the money. Um, and also kind of shows kind of their, their kind of living in between these different places, right? So the ways that the money aided in survival, whether that's through migration, um, paying for school fees, um, I'm thinking in the contemporary sense. Um, so yeah, definitely thank you for kind of clarifying that. Um, and then this is kind of like my, one of my final questions, um, because you kind of get us to not only think about, you know, migration patterns and um, how Panamanians begin to leave or stay, but also really, you know, thinking about the Pan Panama Canal's afterlife at, through death, right? And it's typically analyzed through its cultural impact um, on Black Pan Panamanian society. And, you know, as it relates to cultural production or race formation and citizenship rights. And as you've explored how West Indians form kind of non-traditional partnerships and marriages, you also kind of bring to the forefront how West Indian women have also taken, you know, participated in shaping community and care for one another in death. And this is like an important note about the kind of thinking of these cross communal understandings of family and kinship networks, which we obviously can be seen can be seen today, but it's really fascinating to look at this historically um, and in detail. So can you elaborate and tell us more about the history of kind of like West Indian life with kind of perpetual and pervasive death? Um, I'm not entirely sure about the exact number of West Indians who died. And of course, you know, there's a, lo a lot of them are not documented and a lot of deaths aren't documented. Um, so can you tell us a, a bit more about the history of West Indian life with kind of, you know, surrounding death and the practice and institution of kind of circum-Caribbean networks of care and also kind of formations of kinship? Yeah, I mean, this is my favorite chapter in the book. It's the one I worked the hardest on and the one I'm most <laughs> after five, uh, which is called The Value of Death. Um, so by the official count of the Canal Commission, uh, there were 5,609 employee deaths uh, in the canal zone during construction. And of that number, 80% were West Indian, which is an overwhelming amount, uh, disproportionate. Now, this, this is without taking into consideration the deaths of civilians in the canal zone who were not official employees, uh, people who died in the, term, in the cities, um, in Panama City or in Colón, and so were not inside the canal zone, but perhaps worked for the canal anyways. Uh, and of course, the people who just went totally uncounted by the canal commission, maybe because they were lost, maybe because they, um, their bodies couldn't be identified, uh, maybe because they weren't found, so on and so forth, right? There were there were so many ways that people weren't accounted for. Uh, so some some scholars estimate the death toll closer to 25,000. Um, and this was one of the one of the key ways that West Indians experienced the period of the construction. There was in the 60s, there was this big outreach project to former canal workers asking them to uh, submit their memories of the canal construction. And every single West Indian laborer began their memory of it talking about the overwhelming atmosphere of death. Uh, you could tell that they were really traumatized by it. Every single one of them mentioned it. They mentioned the death trains. There were trains that used to take the bodies every day up and down the canal zone um, to the cemeteries. And uh, they mentioned the disease, right? Malaria and yellow fever that killed people. They mentioned, uh, there, were, there were just so many, and then so many workplace accidents, right? Dynamite, et cetera. Uh, these were really dangerous workplaces and West Indians were placed in the most dangerous zones areas of work, right? And so they overwhelmingly faced uh, these odds. What became interesting to me about this was that, and this is like every question you've asked me, I've just been like, and then I found the source. Uh, but that's exactly what happened, right? This was a, a series of sources I found in the National Archives of the UK in London. Um, I was looking through colonial office records, uh, colonial and foreign office records. And I found that 
the colonial office of different islands received requests from West Indian women in the islands asking about their family members, men, who were in the working in the canal zone, asking whether they had died. And if they had died, whether they could recover uh, the belongings of their family members. And I've, and there are easily over 400 of these requests, right? And I think put this in the context of thinking about, you know, what I talked about earlier in terms of the archives in the US where I wasn't really finding women at all. And then all of a sudden seeing page after page after page of letters written by West Indian women in the islands talking about their families and talking about how their family, what their family members mean to them uh, and, and asking the canal administration and the colonial governments to do work for them, right? To recover this material that they really care about, right? Um, I was particularly struck with the, the, gap between how the canal administration is treating these workers and how their family members are remembering them, right? So as I mentioned, a lot of people went unaccounted for, uh, were buried in anonymous graves or graves marked only by their metal check ID number, right? So just a number, no no name, no place of origin, nothing like that. And often these the, the family members were not notified um, automatically. So men are dying in the canal zone and nobody is memorializing them, mourning them, right? Thinking about, about what they gave to this effort. And instead it's the women back in the islands who are insistent, insistent that the canal authorities get back to them and take responsibility for this process, right? They're saying, tell me now, tell me now what happened to my family member and give me back his things because those are ours, right? And and I'm mourning my family member and that's important to me, even if it's not important to you. Um, so that that to me was like such an intense moment of understanding the kind of emotional, intimate histories of what uh, these deaths meant, uh, which in the canal records are mostly uh, numbers and, and uh, you know, the cemeteries. I was also really inspired by, and I, I mentioned this in the book, and I have continued to do work with this group. There's a, there's a group of West Indian Panamanian descendants uh, who run an organization called the Corozal Mount Hope Gatun uh, Cemetery Preservation Foundation, those are the names of the three cemeteries on the Canal Zone, who have been doing work for the past, uh, you know, decade and a half um, of reconnecting descendants with their family members who died and were buried in the cemeteries uh, without names, right? So they do the groundwork of finding the ID numbers, uh, double-checking them and connecting them with a real person, finding the family members, and then finding the grave where that number is and uh, connecting people with these places so they can now finally, almost more than a century after the canal construction, right, come and celebrate their ancestors who are buried there uh, in segregated burial grounds in the canal zone, right? So I really wanted to tie this together, the history then, but also the history now, right? This is, I mean, more than afterlives, this is like still happening for these families, so. Yes, of course. I think it, um, you know, the details that you included in this particular chapter kind of really painted or brought um, these histories to life, um, I should say, um, in kind of including particular types of histories. I think there was one where um, the gentleman was in communication with the wife back in the islands and um, really working with him to get um, her husband's things. And then I think also there was like a moment where um, there were talks about him adopting the son, which I was just like, oh, this is just, like, I can only imagine, right? And this is something that, you know, irrespective of the numbers and how many people have died, it's just like looking at these particular histories and where to find them. Um, and also how that's kind of um, evolved to these organizations in the present day kind of continuing to kind of take up this work in trying to reconcile or at least kind of tending to this generational trauma that um, is still kind of ongoing from this particular moment, historical moment. Yes, yeah, so um, 
with that, you know, are there any other things that you're hoping that the readers will take away from this book? Um, and also just do you have any exciting projects that you have in the works? In addition to the article that you brought up, um, I'm curious to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one, th one thing you asked me that I didn't quite pick up in my answer was about um, kind of women's importance to to larger global economies, right? To the construction of global economies, which is, I mean, essentially the central argument of the book and the focus of the early chapters, um, which we didn't talk about much, but it is, it is forefront in my mind right now. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about uh, in history, in the field of history, there's such a renewed interest to the history of capitalism um, in the field of African diaspora as well, right? People who are kind of reassessing Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism, thinking about, uh, you know, different routes to economic sovereignty, so on and so forth. And I am really interested in thinking about women's role within that. So that's, that's part of where that article I mentioned is coming from. That's part of what inspired the argument for this book. And that's, that, those are some of the questions that I'm continuing to ask, right? I'm interested in this kind of like transition to capitalism and what role women specifically played in that. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Um, for those listening, be sure to purchase and read Silver Women. And thank you so much, Dr. Flores Villalobos, for sharing your work with us on this podcast. And for those listening, please be on the lookout for Nicole Ramsey's forthcoming work <laughs> as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's giving me the much needed motivation right now. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, great. Great talking to you.